Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Panoply, panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855am digital and 3cr.org.au.
3CR 855am, 3CR digital, 3cr.org.au, 3CR On Demand, Out of the Pan with Sally, first broadcasting noon through one every Sunday afternoon. Thanks for your company. 3CR broadcasts from the lands of the Kulin Nations and we pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Um, Hello to any Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander, First Nations people tuning in from wherever you are and we acknowledge that all the lands were stolen and never ceded. And I'm Sally Goldner, I use the pronouns she and her and I'm your host for this one hour bout, more of which in a minute. Uh, if you want to get in touch with the show today, there's all the modern means of communication to do it. You can email outofthepan855 at gmail.com, SMS 61456751215. You can tweet at and Instagram and Mastodon at Sal, at Sal Gold said so, and that's the bottom line. And look for posts on Facebook, 3CR, Out of the Pan 3CR, 855am Melbourne, and my page Sally Gold. And remember, any opinions I express on the show are my own, not those of any organisation with which I've been associated or am associated. Also, write in PO Box 1277 Collingwood 3066. Possible just general content note today, so um, QLife including Switchboard in Victoria and Tasmania, 1800 184527, Rainbow Door 1800 Well, we opened up today with John Farnham uh, heading Little River Band, playing to win and sending our best regards to John Farnham to improve his health. And I can't wait to get along and see the bio doco. But there's also a very important reason um, why we opened up with the Little River Band's playing to win, because it was the theme song, the entrance song for my guest today. I am um, hugely excited um, to introduce... From the northern beaches of Sydney, now at a healthy weight of 84 kilograms, he is the author of the, to my knowledge, the first Australian wrestling autobiography, Dazzler Dunlop, Inside My Squared Circle, uh, by Ken Dunlop. It is my pleasure to welcome to the 3CR Airwaves, Ken Dunlop. Good afternoon. Thanks so much for your time um, today, Ken. I'm just, um, it's just absolutely awesome to have you on. I you know, first saw that um, you'd put out your autobiography, Inside My Squared Circle, on Shoreline Publishing um, a couple of months ago and just raced to the website for Shoreline to buy it, loved reading it. Um, I might start by saying what prompted you to write an autobiography when you did? After I retired, all the wrestlers, the old wrestlers, catch up every month or every couple of months for a beer and just have a chat. And we'd all sit around and I'd always tell stories and quite a few of the guys said, look, you should write a bloody book. So it was in the back of my head for probably about 10 years or so that one day I'll write it. But when I was working, I I didn't have the time, obviously, to Mm. do that. And I had to retire when I was 56, uh, mainly due to bad health at the time. And the first thing I thought of, well... I've got all this spare time now. I'm going to write a book. And it took me two years. It's a lot harder than mm. you think it is. So, And I did it the old-fashioned way. I did it by writing down everything with pen and paper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
you um, dare I say, old school. Um, I'm very old school. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm with you on that. What happened to those facsimile machines but um, and telegrams? But, um, no, I think that, you know, look, I'm, I'm a bit the same. I prefer to write things out by hand. I can relate to that very much. And it just helps clear your head, and it is the whole activity of it rather than thumping it out on a keyboard or something like that. And so there is well, the so much there. Was, Go for it. The good thing was, like, I'd remember things later on as well about the same topic. Like, I, I had all my chapters written out. Mm-hmm. And because my memory's not that great at times, my short-term memory's pretty bad, and that's from all the concussions I had uh. throughout my career. So I'd sort of put it aside, and then I'd come back, and I'd, I'd just be watching something on TV or talking to someone... And they'd say one word, and I think, oh. And then I remember another story about that. And it's just, again, could be just from one word someone said. So I'd go and add that to that chapter. Then I had to go and rewrite the chapter again just to sort of fit it in. And and this kept happening and happening. And even now, after the book's been published, um, there's four or five things I've remembered since, which I've written down, but they should be in the book, but they're not, of course. But... Yeah, it's just amazing how certain people can just talk about something and it'll just bring up another memory, So, which is interesting how the brain works. Well, yeah, it keeps um, sort of uncovering things. You dig a bit deeper and dig a bit deeper. That's how it happens. Now, I just, there was one thing which I may be mistaken on. To my knowledge, is this the first Australian professional wrestling autobiography, I'll say, to your knowledge? Because I would have thought... To my, to my knowledge, yes. There's been a few Australian... Um, books, but not not an autobiography. Yeah, look, um, as a long a long time fan who grew up watching World Championship Wrestling and went to festival here in Melbourne, I'm a little saddened to think. I mean, it's great that this is the first, but I think there could be more autobiographies, or we'll say authorized biographies. And I mean, people of that era come to mind, which I want to talk about. But let's now go all the way back to the beginning, 1960, where. You entered the world and um, sort of caught on to wrestling pretty quickly. Tell us about the early memories for you um, before you started training of what wrestling meant to you and how it felt for you. Well, we lived up in Maui, up in Gippsland, yep. which is a beautiful part of Victoria. Yep. And I think World Championship Wrestling started in 1964. That's it, yep. And they used to come to your lawns, Kernard Hall once every, I think it was every six weeks or eight weeks. And so when I was probably four years old, mum and dad, because mum was a massive wrestling fan, mm-hmm. we'd go to the show at Kernard Hall. And just to see these guys, I mean, they were massive guys. And, mm. um, and, and of course, the great Jack Little, who yes. later became a good friend of mine. Um, so I was, I was pretty hooked from the age of four, I suppose. And, but then when we moved to Melbourne when I was 10 or 11, Mum and I started going to Festival Hall every Saturday night and, oh, they were just the best times. Like the Kim Curtis, Mark Will and Spirit Serene, Wild Over on Eric, all those sort of guys. It was just incredible. And that was the... I mean, every week was sold out. It was 6,000, yep. 7,000 people every Saturday night. We had permanent... Seats booked on, on the four or five row from the front um, on, the, on the aisle where the goodies come out. And it was just uh, just awesome days. It was a great time to be a young person. Well, look, I, I, I 
Now, it's your interview, but I have to say I can relate because I have a favourite moment from Festival Hall where I got to see Australasian champion Ron Miller take on then world champion, the now late and always great Harley Race, um, was my yeah, childhood I was, highlight. I was there that night. Yeah. <laughs> an amazing, it was an amazing time and so many other great memories of it. And of course, um, world championship wrestling on Saturday and Sunday at noon on TV. And so you just kept connecting and connecting more and obviously going every week, you know, perhaps the um, people in the industry, so to speak, would take perhaps take notice of you and, and mum? Yeah, we got to know a few of the um, wrestlers' wives and some of the girlfriends. And um, so that sort of got us meeting a couple of, like John Snyder was the first guy mm-hmm. I met and Sam Rossi, they were the first two probably. And just getting to talk to them, there was Fred Berger, um, Paddy Ryan, her son was a long boy at Festival Hall. So I got talking to him, um, and then I met Paddy through him as well. So just getting, getting to sort of having a little chat with these people and taking photos with them, it was just a really great time. And, and they knew the passion we had for it. And, and we'd get there at like 6 o'clock so we can see the wrestlers turning up yeah. um, in their taxis and all the international stars and, yeah, it just blows your mind, like, they're all pretty nice guys to talk to, not standoffish, uh, even the heels. Um, if, when they got there early, they'd sort of take photos, but a lot of them wouldn't sign things, especially like people like Bruce Bernard, who <laughs> supposedly couldn't talk. So, um, but I remember he actually chased me around Festival Hall once. He, he was going to, he actually... Yelled out, I'm effing going to kill you. Because um, I, I gave him heaps because I was about 13 or 14, I suppose, at the time. <laughs> and he chased, and luckily the bouncers actually had to hop in between. And yeah, when he said this, I'm effing going to kill you, I thought, oh, he can talk. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, he broke kayfabe. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and the following week he came out and he went straight to where I was sitting, but lucky enough, I'd move to the back just in case. <laughs> well, so you were already getting an idea of what it, excuse me, of what it was to be like <clears throat> to learning some very, we'll say, very basic um, steps, um, even if you weren't doing anything in ring, um, before yeah, you even decided yeah. to really get into the business. You, it was clearly, you know, in the DNA for you. Yeah, definitely. And what um, sort of got you well, up to the <clears throat> next step to say, yeah, I'm not just going to be a a spectator kid chased around the arena by Brute Bernard, but what took you to the next level? What said, I want to really, really go for this? Well, when I was when I turned 16, um, I was talking with Sam Rossi and John Snyder, and they told me they had a wrestling school in North Melbourne called MB's Gym, and they said that I'd like to learn to wrestle. And I didn't even think of asking Mum's permission first. I said, Whoops. yep. and again because I was under 18 in those days you had to get permission from the parents to train and so Sam Ross actually came out to our house and had a chat to mum and dad um, which was really nice of him and um, he said he'd teach me all the right things and I went the following week and that was such a nerve wracking experience because the, the 
owners were there was Sam Rossi, um, John Snyder, Fred Berger, Casey Miller, and Jim Demeris. Mm-hmm. And of course, Fred Berger and Casey Miller were baddies, and the others, and so was John Snyder. The others were goodies. And I used to give them hell when I was a kid. <laughs> I used to yell and scream and swear at them. And when I walked up the stairs, there was the manager of a manager of a gym called Ted Clark. He was just a sensational old guy. Um, John Snyder and Casey Miller were the first two at the bench. And because I'd met John quite a few times at Festival Hall, he straight away recognised me and shook my hand. And when I saw Casey and Fred and all them, I, I really packed. I thought, oh, no, they're going to remember me as that annoying little kid, you know. Mm-hmm. But, but they were pretty good. They were, they were really good. So um, it was, yeah, very nerve-wracking, but it was so exciting. Oh, I can imagine, um, you know, to actually be in there. I mean, you know, because you... You know, as fans, we admire these people um, so much. And then you sort of, wow, you're a bit on, you know, getting on the inside, so to speak. What was, can you remember some of the early training? Um, what, you know, I mean, it's all very well to be, you know, run around the arena. That's all very well. But you are now hitting, let's, you know, um, you know a, a, a row of pine boards covered in mats, which is slightly different physically and mentally. Can, can we explore that a bit more? What was that like early on? It's really hard at the beginning. Like, whenever you learn wrestling, you should you can't learn any holes until you learn how to fall. Yeah. And falling is definitely the hardest. Um, <clears throat> you got to do all your different break falls. There's forward break falls, backward yep. falls. But, um, yeah. So that takes probably at least a month, sometimes six weeks, just to learn how you to fall properly. And Casey Miller was a pretty tough guy. Mm. If, you're, if you're if you're stuffed up, he'd really boot you up the ass hard, or smack you around the back of the head. Whoa! And he'd yell at me, and uh, yeah, and so it was pretty because um, he he was a big man. He was like yep. probably twenty twenty stone and big, quite a big guy. And I was only as a sixteen, I was only very small, so. Um, Pretty frightening, but um, you just copped it all. Like the first couple of weeks, I had skin off my elbows, skin off my knees, all the mat burns, and um, you'd go home and you shower and you oh, sting like hell. Mm-hmm. But again, I just, I just loved it and I just kept going. And I had a, I got a mattress in the backyard, and on the nights I didn't train, I'd, I'd go in the backyard for an hour and just break fall, break fall, break fall in the backyard every night. Yeah, um, which, you know, I'm not, um, I, w- I will do invoke the WWE sort of perhaps don't try this at home. I think at least now try to use gym mats or karate mats or something might be the go, although I'm happy to be corrected on that. Um, although I hope it's at the right firmness of mattress, but um, I imagine the thing is I'm no psychologist, but I think where our bodies don't want us to fall and you've got to train yourself to want to fall. So there's the psychological aspect in there as well. Yeah. Well, the very first night, um, well, not the first night, after a couple of weeks, Casey told me to get on the top rope and do a forward break fall, just landing on, the, on your stomach. Whoa. And, of course, I did it, and I winded myself something chronic, and I was on the floor rolling and paying, trying to get my breath, and he just stood there and yelled at me and smacked me around the back of the head and 
said, you did it wrong, you stuffed it up, get out there and do it again. And I was still trying to get my breath. And so the second time I thought, well, I've got to get this right. <laughs> and I got it right. So um, but that's how, that, that's how it was back then. Yeah, it certainly it certainly seems like a rugged approach. And look, um, I do remember Casey Miller. I mean, even from afar, I, if I can be dry, hum, respectfully dry human, his sideburns were scary enough back then, if I remember rightly. Um, yeah. He was a, definitely a big, big man. And but you you pushed through. You got through. You kept going along, and um, finally came the moment for your, we'll say, full you know, in-ring debut, um, and tell us about that night, what was, if you can remember anything about what was going through your mind sort of before, during, yeah. just after. Well, leading up to it, there was, there was me and a young guy from Melbourne called Rob Magris, um, a great guy, and we, we started pretty much at the same time. And after we trained for probably over a year, um... They said we were ready for our first match, but for some reason they said they can only push one one guy. So they invited Jack Little to come down to the gym, and I mean, it was just a huge, huge honour mm. to meet him from start. And so he sat and spoke to both Rob and I, and then we did all our normal training, probably two and a half hours all our break falls, rolls, then all our regular holds. And then we did like a 15-minute match. Yeah. And they said to Jack, which one do we push? And he went, little Kenny. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that was a massive, massive thrill. So then we debuted... On the 11th of August, 1978, at the Watsonia RSL Club in Melbourne. Yep, out in the east. And um, it was, yeah, we just had to do a 15-minute 15, 15 match, and uh, Jack was the compere, so Tony Marino was the referee. Mm-hmm. So he was a great, he was a fantastic help, because he'd always talk to you throughout the match. Um, and, yeah, it just went fantastic. I was so, so nervous beforehand. And I was trying to cut out all the other noise in the dressing room. But, of course, also in the dressing room, you had people like Rocky Romero, uh, um, Les Roberts, all these people. So all these people I'd grown up watching and I wanted to go and talk to them all and just say how excited I was to meet them. And, and of course, the great Mario Milano, of course. Indeed. And, but I had to sort of try and focus and I wasn't too bad till my music started. And when the music started, that's when the panic set in. But so I just put my head down, walked into the ring, looked at my family, and then I felt okay. And and it just, yeah, the 15 minutes went so quick. Yep. Um, we did make a stuff up right at the very beginning, but we just got up, brushed it off, and just went straight into it. And then just basically went from there. Yeah. Oh, look, it, it is amazing. And I mean, it's, you know, I can understand just, you know, I go and meet wrestlers and, you know, the interval when they're signing autographs or um, pictures or whatever, or T-shirts. And it is, I'm, I, I, you know, look, as uh, someone who, it's very hard to 
not sort of go, oh, I'm your biggest fan or something, because, you know, there is that sense of admiration and for what they do and how much they, you know, that you're putting your bodies on the line to entertain people, which is pretty amazing in itself. Um, just to say, we've had a, one of our recurring listeners come in, Kayleen has said, used to do doing breakfalls when learning judo as a kid, which was fortunate given how poor she was at the rest of it, but um, at least she enjoyed something of it. But um, um, yeah, so there, there you were underway. And of course, um, there was unfortunately, well, there's a few things about 1978. Um, one of the sadder things was it was unfortunately the end of the you know, that 20th century golden era for Australian wrestling, the World Championship Wrestling era after it went off TV, which must have been a bit of a um, an emotional letdown for you after, you know, being so much a part of it um, for so long. Well, I just started in the, after the August 78 and the finish yep. in the December, so I never got a chance to appear at Festival Hall yeah. at that time. If it had gone another year, I would have definitely got a, a chance. But again, I didn't realise that in 1985, I'd get a chance to wrestle there six more times. So that was, again, just another dream come true. My my dream when I first started, yeah. Kenny Medlin was my, Kenny Medlin and Johnny Gray were my two favourite wrestlers, and I've always imagined I'd love to wrestle Ken Medlin at Festival Hall with Jack Little. That was that was sort of my dream. And it came true in 85, so, um, which just blows my mind because a lot of dreams don't come true. So, <laughs> Well, very, very, very true. And just um, for our listeners who perhaps are not up with wrestling, I'll just mention Jack Little, legendary commentator and part of Australian wrestling and the subject of a 1985 recording by a group um, um, headed by Andrew Duffield, formerly of The Models, called Forearm Jolt and famous for his catchphrases of oh brother um that's all there is there's there isn't any more and this saturday night festival hall um and ken medlin the lightweight champion who you know um, i remember very very well and an amazingly talented wrestler the for perhaps our modern wrestling fans the equivalent more of what's now sometimes called the cruiserweight division in some of the bigger promotions worldwide and um you know a guy who could play it i i have an image in my mind of when andre the giant toured and was in a battle royal, and I think Ken Medlin was the second last, and there's the image in my mind is Ken trying to whip Andre the Giant across the ring. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. And it's funny, when Andre sat on um, Ken's chest, he actually broke some of Ken's ribs. Oh, God. And years later, Larry O'Day and Ron Miller, they used to bring Andre out every now and then in Sydney to promote shows around the clubs. And um, I remember, funny enough, the first night was St George Lee's Club, I think it was. Um, Andre walked in, and he was such a, a lovely man. He went up to every single guy, shook their hands, and said hello to everyone. And he saw Kenny Medlin, and Medlin said, "Oh, g'day, you big bastard!" <laughs> and, and it's really funny. He remembered breaking his ribs, <laughs> and, he, and he actually said, "Sorry, how are you?" and they had a good old laugh and a chat, which was just great to sort of see all that happening in the background. It's just unbelievable. Yeah, look, oh, I do remember Ken as being the, the cheeky heel, but he certainly had the in-ring ability to back it up. And, of course, what can you say about Andre the Giant, the, the gentle giant, and I, um, who, you know, was just such, you know, one of the more, for people who aren't into wrestling, one of the more 
sort of well-known, um, you know, um, people um, in in wrestling. People remember him, and I feel like I've got to say this week, um, you know, that sadly this week, of course, we lost superstar Billy Graham um, during the week, um, and just short yeah. of his eightieth birthday. You know, that the wrestlers of that era who, all, you know, Andre was amazing, but superstar was ahead of his time um, so much in what he did. Well, he led people like Ric Flair. Um, he was he was the Flair before Flair type of thing. Yes, and they all copied a lot of his his in ring presence. He had that big presence beforehand. One of the biggest personalities. Which again, it's, it's one thing when you learn wrestling, you don't learn or you can't teach. I suppose the psychology is the biggest part of it. Yeah. And people like like your Flairs, your Billy Grahams and all those sort of people, the ring psychology, if you can master that, you can you can be a crappy wrestler and get away with it if you've got ring psychology. Yeah. You can't do it the other way around. If you, you can be the greatest wrestler, and um, there's been a few over the years who have had great, great technical abilities, but they've got no personality. They've got nothing. So they're not remembered. They're just, you, you see them and you go, oh, wow, they're great. But then you forget them. Once they're off the show, you forget about them. Okay. So uh, there's, a, there's a few I can name, but I don't want to name them. No, fair enough. I mean, they were great wrestlers, but they were just forgettable. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting thing that because you know chatting to a few people when I when I do I mean you know I've under in a way understandably for your I'll go with the in the words in ring performers you know people think the emphasis has to be on the physical and many say oh, I'll work out a character later or I'll work out how to do promos later but um, you know I, I don't you know in the end as you say you've got to have the other side do you want to drill in a little more to that. Psychology and the other part of it. I'm, I'm just—I have to say, general, genuine, genuine curiosity on my part. See, I just copied when I when I started. Like, I, again, because I was a massive wrestling fan, I looked at all the different wrestlers, and as I said, Medlin and Johnny Gray are my two favourites. So, at the beginning, I sort of tried to copy my style from Johnny Gray. Yep. And I tried to throw in the bits of Ken Medlin as well, and then. The guys who I was training with, I tried to learn their personalities, their ring psychs, and just to understand. Because, again, it's, it's something you can't teach. You've got to pick it up yourself. And mm-hmm. it takes it takes a good couple of years to sort of to fully understand. Yeah. But then once you, once you get it and you've got to know from the start, you've got to have something. Otherwise, the people, if you haven't got something to offer, the people won't take Yep. Well, it is. It is about you know sort of popping the crowd. Um, there is that aspect to it as well as well as the for those who are you know going physically full on physical in ring. Um, there is that aspect to it. Definitely. Well, I had a, a great tag team partner up here in Sydney, Wayne Lofty Pigford. Yeah. And we started teaming up in 1981, and we teamed right through to 1996, and we had a few breaks in between where we fused with each other because just depending on what the promotions needed at the time. But even till the end, we always tried to add something new nearly every match. Because in those days, because there was no internet, mm-hmm. 
Um, we used to get tapes from overseas, and um, a friend of ours in Melbourne had a converter machine, so we'd get tapes from Japan, we'd get tapes from America. She'd convert them, and we'd watch them, and we'd study them, and we'd watch the tape 10 times, 20 times, to try and pick up something new. And so we tried to... Because we had regular followers in Sydney who'd go to the clubs. Every club we'd go to, they'd be mm-hmm. at the same club. So we always tried to do at least one new thing every match to keep them surprised as well. Yep. So even after all those years, we still were learning and adjusting to what was happening at the time. Which, you know, like anything, you've got to keep growing. Um, you know, you've got to keep, got to keep learning, got to keep expanding. Um, dare I quote Undertaker's Hall of Fame speech, never be content. Um, so you've got to keep rolling and yeah. keep, keep going with it. Um, you know, I look, I know you and I could talk wrestling all day, but this is a program about LGBTIQA plus issues. So before I get too far down a rabbit hole, um, 1978 was a significant year because in Australia, of course, it was the first Mardi Gras, which wasn't all glitter covered back then by a long way. And you, as well as, um, you know, loving wrestling, you had something else going on in your life. And as per the, you know, the back cover of, um, Dazzler Dunlop inside my squared circle, um, put out by Shoreline Publishing, um, you were um, someone who was openly, who is openly gay, and you're having to start having to think about that as you sort of move into your late teens. Can do you want to talk a little more about that part of life? Yeah, it was a pretty scary time because when I was sixteen, I'd realised that I was gay. Yeah, um, and it just wasn't talked about back mm-hmm. in those days. There were no helplines. There was no no one there to help. I didn't know anyone who was gay. So I sort of kept it all hidden in. And because my life was, it was sort of weird. I was so happy and so excited that I was learning the wrestling side of my yep. life. I was also struggling coming to terms with my sexuality. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't until I was probably 17 that I, I started exploring that side of my life and I, I kept it very much on the quiet. I mean, again, I think three people knew at the time. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it was just really, really hard. And when I started doing my matches, I, I mean, John Snyder um, became my closest friend. Yeah. And I just loved the man to death. He was... Such a wonderful man, and he, he was such a huge man. He was probably twenty-four stones, wow. <laughs> massive guy. And I actually wrestled him once as well, um, which was here I was probably twelve stone or thirteen stone wrestling this big man, and he made me look a million dollars, which was sensational. Um, but I told him, and he said, "Look, doesn't matter. It doesn't." And he, he, he sort of told me how there was so many gay wrestlers throughout the years, but they always had to mm. keep keep it to themselves, obviously, and not publicly known. And um, so he was probably one of the first in the wrestling business that I confided in. Yep. And it wasn't until I moved to Sydney that I actually told everyone straight out that I was gay. Yeah. Um, I think it was a relief in a way because I was away from home mm-hmm. as well. 
and I still hadn't come out to my parents at that stage, but I told the people in Sydney um, right from the start, and no one seemed to to care really, which was which was good in a way. Um, but I knew there was talk behind my back, but I again I, I sort of didn't cop anything to the to the to my face at the time. But it was a struggle because like being against being on such a high from doing all wrestling mm-hmm. and coping with the gay life. I mean when I the first night I moved to Sydney I, I went down Oxford Street and I saw guys walking down the street holding hands and I saw girls holding hands and I thought, oh, wow, you wouldn't see that in Melbourne. Because yeah. there wasn't a gay area in Melbourne. Like there was, I mean, St Kilda was sort of always the rough area, but it wasn't a sort of a gay area. Yep. And there was only one gay club in Melbourne I went to when I was 18, and that was um, some corner commercial road in St Kilda Road, the yep. hotel there. They were gay one night a week. Yes, back then, that was on a Monday night of all nights, which is a stupid night to have it, but um, I can't think of the name of the place. But that it, was, well, yeah, that well was, it was for a long time the Chevron, and there would have been particular rooms in there, and that tradition um, kept going for a very long time, um, just to put a bit of self into it. I didn't yeah, well, start being myself until, yeah, until the mid-90s, and there was rooms there in, you know, gay nights there in the late 90s. yeah. So that's where I started in the in the in the seventies. So um, I'd go there. On a, I went there a couple of times on a Monday night. But again, because it was such a, a bad night to have it on. Yep. Um, yeah. Yet and you had to be home. Like it didn't start till say like ten o'clock at night. Well, in those days I had to get a tram because so I couldn't drive. So I had to get a tram home. So I had to leave by eleven to get oh, the tram home. <laughs> so it was, it was it was very hard and. I did find relief in the gay saunas in Melbourne. They were sort of my learning yep. step. Um, I went to the first one, which was in Elizabeth Street, I think it was, right down near, near Burke Street Mall. Oh, okay. um, and, I mean, it just blew my mind that I went there, on a, I think it was a Sunday afternoon, and there's probably about 50 people there, and I thought, wow. And, yeah, it was just incredible. So I had to sort of learn things from going to those places. And and also, like, I've met a married couple who, when I was 17, and they wanted someone to join in for threesome, so I, I did that, and... And they used to have these like orgies at their house, and, and that was again my learning curve. Sort of all these married, there was probably six or seven married couples, and me. <laughs> um, but I found I always wanted to get off the men, not their wives, sort of thing. And it was, it was like a swingers party, and so that all started off. Had me a little orgy in the lounge room, then all the men would go to the pool in the backyard and the women would go all in the kitchen. And so then that's how it all started. And, and one guy took me to a, a gay party in Footscray one night and I, I really panicked. And, and then here I was, 17, um, a real baby face type of thing. And all these people were like 
I thought they were ancient, but they're probably like forty or thirty. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, I was I was so scared. And but then a guy who was at twenty six came in and made me sort of feel at ease and talked me all through it and what happens and. So that's how I had to learn because there was no other ways of finding out. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, it was pretty pretty horrifying in those days. And, and of course, it was being gay in Sydney wasn't legalised till 1982. So things that I was doing were pretty much illegal. But it's just, it's just hard to imagine. I went to my first Mardi Gras in 81, mm-hmm. which was such an eye-opener. It was just... Oh, Incredible. And I used to go to the Exchange Hotel, which was one of the in places at the time. That was just a sensational. We had three different bars, three different groups all together. Like downstairs was sort of like the older guys with the leather. The middle bar was sort of like the people in their 20s. The front bar was all full of 16, 17, 18-year-olds. It was just an amazing place. And, and you'd see all the TV stars there um, who were there openly gay and drinking and but again, they were never out in the press. And I remember I used to go there and I'd just have a beer and sit back and just be dumbfounded. I'd be watching all these people go, oh, wow, this is incredible. <laughs> and there was a couple of TV stars there um, and I rang mum the next day and I said, oh, I was at this bar last night and I was four so-and-so, so-and-so, and you know, they're gay. And, and I still hadn't told her that I was gay, but she must have obviously worked it out because I was going to some gay bars and seeing all these people who were gay and I'd tell them about all them. It wasn't for a couple of years that I told them. So, um, But, yeah, yeah it, was, it, was, it was a lot harder back then than it is today. Yeah, well, definitely. And I do want to, want to ask, and, I, um, you know, if you can you hint at you talk about this in um, um, Dazzler Dunlop in the book, um, you know, you did come out to family, um, you know, eventually and how that went. Yeah, I was really, really nervous uh, and scared. I, I, I had a, a, a pretty tough time in, here in Sydney at one stage there and I wasn't coping well and I made an attempt at my life and I just took a heap of sleeping pills, drank some beer... And I went down to Bondi Beach and I was going to throw myself off the rocks. Wow. Um, and I stood there right on the edge, looked down and I was crying and this jogger just came along. And I can't remember any other details. Took me, I know he just took me aside and talked to me. Next thing I woke up, it was two days later, um... And I was in bed. I didn't know what day it was. Because um, this happened on a Friday night. Yeah. And then it was Monday morning. Wow. And I woke up and I thought it was Saturday morning. So I went to the local corner shop to get the paper. And I saw the paper and I thought, it said Monday. And I said, what day is it? And he said, Monday. I thought, oh, shit, I didn't go to work. Mm. Um, but then I realised that I, I needed help, so I rang up my boss and I just said, you know, I had some personal issues and I won't be in. And I had a really good friend 
um, Stephen Kirkman, who sadly passed away last year, and he was sort of my first gay friend in Sydney. Um, I've met him probably six months after I got here, and we were best friends until last year when he passed away. Yep. And um, I rang him, and I was, again, I was crying, and I told him what happened, and, and he had a friend who was a psychiatrist, and um, he rang her, and she saw me that afternoon. So I sat with her for about two and a half hours. And that's when I decided I had to go down to Melbourne and tell my parents. Yep. So, again, I rang my boss, and I had a sensational boss at the time, and um, I took two weeks off work. So I flew to Melbourne, and I was going to tell them the first night, but I was that scared, I just couldn't I couldn't do it the mm-hmm. first night. So the second night, I got mum and dad and my grandma, because grandma lived with us, and um, I said, I need to have a talk. And I was really scared about dad's reaction, because dad was a real typical hard-working Australian guy through and through. Yep. He always worked two or three jobs to support the family. He was just a, I mean, a great, great man, but not a, never hugged. Um, mm-hmm. He was just handshake. Good night, son. Handshake type of thing. Yep. So I was worried about his reaction, um, and I don't know why I wanted down there, but I thought, well, why not? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when I said I've got something to tell you, I said, look, you might not be happy. And um, of course, then Dad said, "You're on drugs." I said, "No, no, no." And he said, "You got someone pregnant?" I said, no. Just <laughs> <laughs> was like, shut us up and just talk. And then when I said it. Um, Mum just said, oh, I've known for years. And she gave me a hug. And man sort of, well, doesn't matter, I don't care. (laughs) Dad didn't say a word. He just looked at me and he got up and walked out of the room. Mm. And he went to bed. So I thought, okay. So then Mum and I sat up for hours and hours and hours talking, which was such a, a big, huge relief. Yep. And... The next morning, um, we had breakfast. Dad's all he said was good morning. Then he went to work. Come home, good afternoon. That was it. And I thought, oh. And mum said, look, he's just going to take a little bit of time. Yep. And But after the second day, I said, look, I think I'll go back to Sydney instead of staying the week. I think I'll just go home. Yep. And, and then Dad said, no, stay. And he said, look, I don't understand. He said, but you're my son and I love you. He said, but just don't talk about it anymore. Okay. So I thought, okay. So we didn't talk about it at all until the early 90s, actually, when when my mother got really ill and sadly passed away at a young age. Um, Dad and I got really close. And he actually would sit there and he'd hold my hand and he told me he loved me and all these sort of things. And it was always a hug. And I thought, wow, gosh, what a change. And right up until his, his death six years ago, we were so close. Then when I met Joey, I introduced Joey to him and he accepted Joey as his son-in-law. Um, 
So it was just a big, huge turnaround. But but again, it was pretty horrifying because you just don't know how people are going Absolutely. to react. Well, look, I, I think I can just say, as a bi and trans woman, I can empathise very, very much. Um, I appreciate you sharing that, you know, so much, and I think our listeners would too. And, you know, just particularly that difficulty, if anything, um, you know, people do need to reach out. Please reach out. And a reminder of our numbers, um, QLife, one eight hundred one eight four five two seven, Rainbow Door, one eight hundred seven two nine three six seven. I had a question, and then we've got a couple of questions in from one of our um, recurring listeners, Jenny, um, which I, I, um, we're, just, we're so close to time. We've only got um, about seven minutes of conversation time left. Um, and I, we need two hours, but um, the, the um, Freedom of Species coming up at one o'clock, which is one of our next shows. Um, one of the questions, we were just discussing this before we came on air, that in those days it was illegal for you as a male to wrestle a female, and nowadays we see... So much more intergender stuff. Um, you know, last year I saw, for example, um, the fabulous Robbie Eagles down here wrestle um, Charlie Evans one night and Jessica Troy the next. And, um, you know, Rhea Ripley, even on WWE, has wrestled Akira, to, um, to, um, Akira Takaza. And I'm sorry, I've got the name wrong there. Um, so we are seeing that breakdown. Um, and... Really, when you think about it, it makes sense because if you can put Rey Mysterio versus the big show, does it really matter about someone's sex or gender or anything else? But um, you had ran into a bit of trouble at that point where because you um, you had a match against a female. Tell us that story and then I'll get to, get to Jenny's questions. Yep. Well, then back in the... Right from the 70s up until 2000, the Sydney wrestling scene was run by the New South Wales Government Department of Sport and Recreation and they had to have two licensing police in every um, show, otherwise the show couldn't go ahead. And they were pretty strict rules, like you weren't allowed to fight outside the ring, you weren't allowed to do certain things. And at the time, we were doing a show in the early 90s, and um, someone I was commentating at the time, and someone didn't turn up for the show, so... Mm -hmm. The matches were short, and we had a two and we had to fill in two hours fifteen minutes at a, at a club. That's how the, the rules were. The clubs they were very strict with their timing. And Amy Action was on the show, and Amy would be easily one of in those days one of the top two female wrestlers in Australia at the time. Yep. From from probably the seventies to two thousand, it was Sherry Sinatra mm -hmm. and Amy Action. They were definitely the best two women wrestlers ever come through. And she only had a young, one of her trainees there, so they couldn't go more than five minutes. So we set up an angle where she was just beat the girl up in like three or four minutes. Me being the comments, and then I stepped in to stop her. And she attacked me and she punched me and kicked me and ripped my shirt off and all that sort of stuff. So then we had an impromptu 10, 15 minute match. And then one of the other guys come in, in at the end to interfere and to set up the main event. So it all worked out really well. But, of course, afterwards, the licensing police came back Oops. and they reported us to the Department of Sport and Rec because, again, it was illegal up until then for, for men to wrestle women. So I tried to explain the situation to the policemen at the time and they weren't happy with that. So then I had to go into the, the offices of the Department and Rec guarantee that it wouldn't happen again, and make a, a written apology and just explain, try to explain what happened. 
So, yeah, it was, in those days it was pretty tough and you had to get it just how it was. You couldn't yep. change it. Yeah. Look, um, I want to get to Jenny's questions in, in honour yep. our listener. Um, there's two and one which is of interest to me. Um, and I'll quote this question exactly, and that is, quote, the first one is, how has wrestling moved away from a sexist and racist past to a more inclusive future and in evolving with a more modern age, which you do cover in Dazzler Dunlop, and I think we can say homophobic, transphobic as well, um, in relation to Jenny's question. So I'll go with that one first, and then there's um, another question that um, she's got as well. But let's pop that one first. I think it's changed dramatically for the best, which is mm. great. There's so many openly gay wrestlers now here in Australia and all around the world, and it doesn't seem to be an issue anymore, which I, I find fantastic, just simply fantastic. Because back then, in the old days, again, like they used to portray bad guys as the gay characters, mm. and and they used to say in their, if you read the autobiographies from the old wrestlers, people used to love watching the gays get beat up. Mm. Um, that's how that's how the mentality was back then. So it, it is great to see how it's all changed, and, and no one cares anymore. Yeah. And it's not, and it's not really part of a storyline. And you know, I I have to, for myself, if I can, pay tribute to people who were out in those times from older times. Pat Patterson, you mentioned, promoted Jim Barnett for me. Um, Orlando Jordan, who, um, amongst many things, now runs a wrestling school in Melbourne, who's openly bi. You've got people like Sonia Deville, um, Shayna Baszler, and for me in particular, honouring anyone who's trans in wrestling, Nyla Rose, former. AEW Women's Champion and um, um, Giselle Shaw, who's in Impact now, which just to me is, I, I just can't, I, I can't tell you for me how mind blowing that is. If I can have one self indulgent moment in this interview, and it just yeah. makes it feel, you know, so so good to see that all this is happening, and there's many others. And I've got to give a little mention to a promotion down here, Deathmatch Down Under, which has on its website, we will not do sexist, racist um, stories or any, you know, story that's derogatory, which I think is really, really good to see yeah, that. Fantastic, yeah, yeah fantastic, yeah. I love Sonny Kiss in AEW. Sonny Kiss is just a great character. Yep. And and that's him being himself, which is fantastic. Yeah, well, that's, that's that, what well, we That want. would not have happened 20, 30 years ago. It would not have happened. Yep. Um, got a couple more things before we run out of time. I, gosh, I wish we had more time because there's so much we haven't even got to. Um, Jenny's other question is, your favourite wrestlers from the new generation and one, I'll let you just name your favourite wrestlers of all time, but also anyone who's currently um, involved. Um, you know, some quick quick list of favourites. Ric Flair, obviously number one. Yeah. Woo! Um, yeah, I love Rick. Um Barry Windham, and from the new era, I'm, I'm not. I don't watch a lot. I, I'm really intrigued by Sammy. Is a good Guerrero. Yeah. Um, he, from what I've seen, looks very impressive. I've only seen probably four or five matches. I don't. I haven't watched WWE for a couple of years, so I'm out of touch with with them. But in Australia, because you've got Robbie Eagles, who is just sensational. Yep. And. Banjo Powers, who's the guy from Sydney who's now wrestling in Adelaide, a very impressive young man. We have some such great young talent in Australia. Perth seems to have some great wrestlers. Um, Gavin McGavin is another one I've, I've seen a few videos of or 
YouTubes of and um, just impressive. So we're in a really good place at the moment. Yeah, look, agree, agreed with that. And there was a great four-page article in a recent um, episode of Inside the Ropes on Australian wrestling as well. And, of course, very hard not to mention, you know, Rhea Ripley being at the top of WWE at the moment, Demi Bennett, um, who seems to have just worked her backside off and done it honestly, which impresses me as well. Um, yeah. I wish we could talk and talk forever, but just on a very different note, you have moved away from wrestling and now you're on Instagram as... Ken Tongue's desserts. How are you staying at eighty-four kilograms? T- I'm tasting all those wonderful desserts that you do. I only have half of them. <laughs> <laughs> I knew there had to be a trick in there, um, some yeah, sort of no, cafe no, brawl that we've just broken. We just we just get one dessert and we share it. So um, we do that all around the world. Um, we love travelling. That's what we do now. We just we've done two trips in two months, and we're going away Wednesday, so it'd be three trips in three months. Um, then we're having a six-month break, staying at home and then going away again. But we try and do four trips a year. Um, plus, we love exploring Australia. Like they've done Tasmania recently, Perth. Again, I always love coming back down home to Melbourne. I still call Melbourne my home. Yep. Uh, even though I've lived in Sydney more than two-thirds of my life, probably. But, um, yeah, I, I love Melbourne. But, yeah, we, go, we try and go to Queensland and we, we try and go all over. Adelaide, I love Adelaide as well. We try and go everywhere. So yep. we just love travelling and love eating. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, all I can say um, as we end the show is if you do get down to Melbourne, um, I'd, I'd just love to meet you and just shake your hand and thank you. And I can also drop a hint that I'm sure there are lots of wrestling schools if you wanted to drop by down here. Well, if, they, if none of them do, they're the biggest pack of heels since Bruiser Brody. But I'm sure I'm sure they would love you to come by and just you know share some stories and tips and all that sort of thing because of course they would want to keep learning. So um, Ken, we've got to leave it there. Um, just hang on a second. I'll pop you back on hold because um, yep, I've got to make sure. way Thank for you. Freedom of Species. Thanks so much for your time, Freedom of Species today. Their guest is um, Zane McNeil, who's a non-binary scholar activist from West Virginia who's edited a whole range of collections and received a National Lawyers um, Guild Legal Award for their for their work and organising. So that's going to be great um, radio. The, it's a double-header main event on 3CR today, then followed, um, well, it's always a main event, um, rotations at two and queering the air at three. Um, Ken, I'll take it out today with your other um, entrance music that you loved and as a fan of Mental as Anything and Rest in Peace, Greedy Smith, although this was a Martin Plaza on lead vocal. Mr Natural, you are very natural. Thank you so much. And, um, well, in honour of Jack Little today, I will not only will I say catch you next week, I will also say for today's program, that's all there is. There isn't any more. Thanks for tuning in to Out of the Pan this week.